0: Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Everyone doing well? Enjoying the weather we've been having? It's beautiful. We're actually having a fall here in Colorado Springs. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 this evening. This morning. Feels like Saturday night service. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being together, being able to worship together. We thank you that we're able to come before your throne, and Jesus, that you're seated upon your throne. We pray for just clarity and also encouragement as we read your word this morning. We thank you that we're sealed by your spirit, that you're going to keep us in your love until we join you. So, Father, we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's good to pause and ask the question, where are we in the book of Revelation? The key to understanding this book from a practical sense is Revelation 1:19. It's a divine outline where God speaks to John and says, Write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then write the things which are chapters 2 and 3. Jesus' letter to the seven churches. Then write the things after this. And in chapter four, verse one, we see this phrase, after this. It's a new section in the book of Revelation from chapter four to chapter twenty-two. That's the section that we're currently in. Do you guys remember what chapter four and five were all about? It's about the It's about the throne, right? What are chapters four and five all about? The the throne. We got to go back and reread those. <laughs> to have that vision that Christ is seated on his throne, that all of life flows through the reality that God is sovereign and he is ruling and reigning. Last week in chapter 6, we see the six seals open a scroll that is sealed with seven seals and six of those seals are opened. God's judgment uh, begins. As we'll continue in the book of Revelation, the the seals then lead to the trumpets, and the trumpets lead to the bulls. And all of this is the great tribulation when God's pouring out his wrath. At the end, we see this statement, it is done, where God's judgment is done, it's complete upon the earth. In chapter 7, there's this pause between the sixth and seventh seal. You'll notice that there's no seal that is opened in this chapter. But it answers the question at the end of chapter 6 where who can stand the wrath of the Lamb? Can anybody stand during this tribulation time? And there's two groups. One is the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel that, that are saved, that are living for the Lord. They're going to be preserved through this tribulation period. Then we see a group of believers that are saved during the tribulation that go home to be with the Lord, and God rescues them and preserves them as well. Verse 1, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. Four angels and their job from the four corners of the earth, the four corners of the earth is an expression from, from every part of the earth, They're holding back the wind to where the wind is not blowing on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Try to just imagine no wind at all. If you live in in Falcon or or Peyton, that's difficult for you to do. (laughs) But just just no wind. What would happen to our, our weather systems if there was no wind? Scientists tell us that we would really go to extremes. The equator would become extremely hot and then up north would become extremely cold further from the equator imagine the fires from the smoke the smoke from the fires this summer and just that sitting and the wind never blowing it out god during this whole period is getting the attention of a christ-rejecting world and part of his judgment here is to stop the wind In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, and also in Hosea, the wind speaks of of God's judgment. And so God stopping the wind is an expression of his judgment. But something happens before he does this. There's a fifth angel. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying... Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the fifth angel says, wait a second. Before you stop the wind, before you, you harm the earth, I've got a seal. And I'm going to seal the servants of, of God on their, their foreheads. Now this principle of, of being sealed by God is something that we do see throughout Scripture. In fact, even Jesus was sealed with the Father. In John 6, 27, it says, God the Father had set a seal on Him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're told that we're sealed with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. If you're buying a house, there's that earnest money. That there's that down payment. And the Holy Spirit is the, the down payment, the guarantee, the seal. Also in Ephesians chapter 1, it t- tells us that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The seal would indicate ownership that it belongs to you it's your property a, a king would put his his seal upon certain possessions and god has placed his seal upon us and for these 144,000 god's going to seal them on their foreheads and it's going to mark god's protection upon them during this tribulation period foreheads may ring a bell a little bit because it reminds us of the mark of the beast where that mark is placed on the forehead and also on the wrist. But Satan's the ultimate counterfeiter. God does this first. He he marks his people. He seals them on the forehead. In verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all of the tribes of Israel were sealed. So God gives us a number here. There's 144,000 Twelve thousand from each tribe that are sealed upon their forehead. Turn with me over to Revelation fourteen, verse four, because we see more about this hundred and forty-four thousand. They come up again later in our study, but God gives us some specific information about them. Let's look at verse three and verse four of Revelation fourteen. Then they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. So they have their own song. You've got to be part of the 144,000. You can't learn it unless you're, you're part of the 144,000. It tells us they're redeemed. So we know that they're saved, that they believe in Jesus and His death and His resurrection. The only way you can be redeemed is by the blood of the Lamb. So, so they're Jews that have come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Part of what God's doing during the tribulation period is waking up the nation of Israel spiritually 144,000 that are dedicated to the Lord. These were the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They're the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. So we know that they're men. There are 12,000 men from each tribe. They're virgins. They've not been married. They've not been defiled uh, with women. Not that marriage is bad. You could kind of get that idea from that verse, but we know from Scripture that marriage is good. Amen? He who finds a wife finds a, a good thing. The marriage bed is is honorable, but God's highlighting these 12,000 men from each tribe. They're, they're virgins, and they're dedicated to uh, the Lord. So we know what the 144,000 is, but there's a lot of confusion still about the 144,000. The Jehovah's Witnesses felt that they were the 144,000 for a long time until they exceeded that number, and then they're like, oh, wait, wait a second, we got to recalculate that a little bit. Historically, the Mormons thought that they were the 144,000. If anybody comes up to you and says, hey, I'm part of the 144,000, ask them a couple questions. What tribe are you from? What tribe of Israel are, are you from? And are you married? Oh, sorry, you're not part of the 144,000 if you're, if you're married. There is probably a more common teaching that the 144,000 actually represents the church. That we are the 144,000, but it's very specific. We're going to see in the next few verses that God calls out the 12,000 from each tribe. There's no other time in Scripture when the tribes are listed that any Bible teacher or commentary tries to say it's the church. Except for here in Revelation chapter 7. It's a stretch to try to say that this is the church of God, and that goes to a deeper teaching that's called replacement theology, and it's very common that the church has replaced the position of the nation of Israel. But as we look closely at scripture, God is committed to his people. God made several covenants with Israel in the Old Testament, In Genesis chapter 12, he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your descendants so that you can be a blessing to the nations. Then in chapter 13, God speaks to Israel and says, I'm going to give you the land of Palestine. Those are covenants that God has made to the children of Israel. To David, he said, One of your descendants is going to be on the throne forever. That's a commitment that God made to Israel. There's a new covenant commitment that God made to Israel to give them a new heart, to write God's law upon their heart. You may say, well, that's all Old Testament. Romans 9, 10, and 11 speak very clearly about God's commitment to the nation of Israel. So this is clearly 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. Why is there such a hatred for Jews? Why is there such a hatred for the nation of Israel? If you look back in biblical history, who tried to destroy the Jews? Well, Pharaoh did, didn't he? To try to totally wipe them out. But God was bigger and grew the nation of Israel, even amongst Pharaoh's opposition. Haman, in the book of Esther, tries to completely annihilate the children of Israel. Once again, God is, is bigger, and they had victory over their, their enemies. Herod, at the birth of Jesus, trying to destroy the Messiah trying to destroy the nation of Israel going into Bethlehem killing the baby boys Hitler comes up with this plan H- how did Hitler come up with the plan that the Jews were the root of the problem and we've got to annihilate the Jews there's something spiritual that takes place you may have never thought about it this way but if the Jews are completely annihilated Revelation chapter 7 can't be fulfilled God's a liar if the Jews are annihilated. Well, I got to tell you this. The Jews aren't going to be annihilated. God's going to be faithful to his people. Also, those that are skeptics of this section of scripture say, "Well, well, we don't know who the tribes are today. And that's true. Those that are Jews know that they're from Israel, but they don't know I'm from the tribe of Judah. I'm from the tribe of Manasseh. So keep your eye on that. That's a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled. Something's going to happen to where Jews are going to be able to know what tribe that they're from. And it is fascinating all that we're able to discover from DNA, isn't it? And going back and being able to look at our our ancestry. I don't know how it's going to be filled, but it is going to be fulfilled. So verse 5, let's read through these 12 tribes. And to the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, you guessed it, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. What's the emphasis? We're sealed. God is able to put his protection upon his people. When we get to chapter 14, it wasn't 143,000. It wasn't 142,000. It's 144. God protected them through his, his judgment. As you read this, is there anything missing? Is there a tribe here that you would expect to read from verse 5 down to verse 8? There's no tribe of Dan. The, The tribe of Dan is omitted here and replaced with the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi were the priests and they were not normally listed in the genealogies. They didn't have an inheritance in the children of Israel. So God replaces Levi with Dan. There's... Some speculation on why is Dan left out. Dan was the first tribe in the Old Testament to fall into idolatry and really cause the rest of the nation of Israel to stumble. And that may be the reason that God chooses to leave the tribe of Dan out. But write down Ezekiel 48 because you see the tribes listed in Ezekiel 48 during the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ after he returns. And guess who's listed first? the tribe of Dan. So God's gracious. So here the tribe of Dan is omitted, but in Ezekiel 48, they're the first ones that are included. Another thing that's different about this listing of tribes is we see Joseph is listed, and normally it would be Ephraim. Ephraim is his son. Ephraim and Manasseh would normally be listed, but Ephraim is not included, and Joseph is included. So when we get to heaven, maybe we'll ask more information about that. Because <laughs> the word of God's going to live forever. It's going to endure forever. So that's the first group that is sealed through the tribulation. The second group is the multitude that's gathered at the throne of God. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all of the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues... Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Attention upon a great multitude that can't be numbered, and it's all nations, it's all tribes, it's all people, and it's all tongues. It would be safe to conclude that the 144,000 have impact on the rest of the nations that these 12,000 from each tribe that are redeemed, that are committed to the Lord, because now we see this multitude that's been reached of every people, of every tongue, and and every tribe. Having then passed away in the tribulation, either through persecution, or all of the peril that comes in the tribulation, they're at the, the throne room of God. In Matthew 24, verse 14, it says that, gospel is going to be preached to all the nations, then the end will come. This is a fulfillment of Matthew twenty four fourteen. that the gospel has gone to the nations. Imagine this for, for just a moment around the throne room of God to hear the worship of God in all cultures, all ethnicities, all languages. There's an aspect of who we are here on earth is who we're going to be in heaven, but a glorified version. You don't leave your ethnicity, you don't leave your, your language, your language is going to be expressed to the Lord at the throne room of God. All, all peoples, all, all nations, they're, they're gathered there, all tongues, all languages, and they're standing before the throne, they're standing before the Lamb. This is how the Father wants us to see Jesus, is the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain, but who's also all-powerful, the, the focus is always the lamb at the throne room of God. And they're clothed with white ropes, speaking of the salvation that they have in Christ, the grace that they have in Jesus. And they have palm branches in their hands. Does that remind you of something? When Jesus came, the triumphal entry on a donkey, humbly on a donkey, they waved palm branches and cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. It speaks of victory. And this multitude that's brought out of the, the great tribulation, they're worshiping and saying, Hosanna, salvation belongs to you. Save now is what the word Hosanna means. Let's pause here for just a second because there is some controversy and division over the nature of this multitude. There's some that look at this multitude as believers, that those that got saved during the tribulation, that then God is brought home to heaven, that the rapture of the church has already happened. The church is mentioned in chapter 2 and 3. We don't see the church mentioned again. Before the tribulation begins, God raptures up the church, and and we're with the Lord. We're, We're forever with the Lord, and that's the opinion I hold. That's the interpretation that I hold Because it's the only position that really causes us to look for the imminent return of Christ, that Christ could come at any moment. But there's others that look at this multitude as not those that are saved during the tribulation, but that the rapture happens here. And that's where you would come up with more of a mid-trib type of, or pre-wrath type of uh, position. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of men and women that love the Lord, that have studied the scriptures, that have come up with, different positions on this. And the church is dividing over so many things right now. Let's not divide on this this position. You can choose your position and we can still be friends. Amen? But ultimately, the attention is upon Jesus who is upon the throne. In verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. They're rejoicing in the salvation that God has provided they're noticing that Christ is seated upon the throne he's not even standing he's not anxious he's not pacing he's not worried he's seated it's a position of rest the lamb is is seated on the throne and the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped god quite a picture how many angels are there we don't know but they're all around the throne with the 24 elders, with the four living creatures. And they fall on their faces before the Lord and they worship God. Let's join in the chorus of heaven. When we see the throne, we see worship. Eternity is going to be worship. Falling down before the Lord is an expression that my life belongs to you. I'm expressing my love to you. My very life belongs to you. It's going to be the agenda of heaven, the joy of heaven. Let's make that the joy of this life as well. If we're not worshipers in this life, we're going to miss it. We might be looking for the next accomplishment, the next raise at work, the next degree, just hoping and praying that somehow the Broncos can come up with a winning season. <laughs> right? Looking for the next vacation, longing for there not to be trial or difficulty in this life we're always going to be disappointed it's never going to be enough the the eye is never going to be satisfied the, the ears never going to be satisfied seek first the kingdom of god and all these things will be added unto you make worship the the priority god this is why i exist i'm, I'm here to worship you i'm here to honor you And verse 12 saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're agreed. This multitude of angels, this multitude of nations and peoples and tribes, they're all agreed on who God is and the goodness of God. Amen. I'm sure this morning there's varying opinions on the vaccine. There's varying opinions on politics. There's varying opinions on a lot of things. But what can we say amen about who Jesus is? That he's our savior, that he died for us and he rose again. And and we have a lot more in common than we disagree upon. And we can disagree upon these these other things, but to keep our focus on, on Christ. Satan's tricky and he wants to divide the church. He wants to divide families and divide marriages. And where we find unity is in Christ and who He is. And taking the time to express our thankfulness to the Lord, giving Him blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and an honor. Sometimes in our families, with our parents, our, our siblings, for those that are married with your spouse, if you're a parent with your kids, as We feel love towards our families, but we don't express it sometimes. And there's a lot of joy that comes. Well, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say how thankful that I am for you. I've been reflecting the last few days just on on my family and Amber and the kids and just so thankful for for Amber and the kids. So thankful to be able to journey in life uh, together. With God, many times, I think, we have love in our heart for him, worship in our heart for him. And we go, God, you know my heart. But there's something about expressing it. There's something about saying, God, you, you've blessed me with this, and I know that it's from you. I'm so thankful that you've forgiven me. I'm so, I'm so thankful for eternal life. I'm so thankful that you're, you're my dad. So take that time to express that relationship with the Lord, that worship to the Lord. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? The elder asks John a question, which I find really intriguing. And the elder is a spiritual leader. It's it's someone that God's put in this, this place of leadership. And this elder has the wisdom to ask John a question. Ask John a spiritual question: Where did this multitude come from? It seems that this this multitude is new to the throne room. They're coming out of the great tribulation. The elder could have simply told John this information, but he wants to ask the question to cause John to stop and think. Have you noticed with the life of Jesus that he's the master at asking questions? He didn't always just download information like, "Hey." Let me preach at you for a while. A lot of times he would ask questions one-on-one, individually. And as we desire to impact hearts and lives for Christ, it's wise to ask questions. What do you think? What's on your mind? What do you think uh, about Christ? What are your questions uh, about Christ? Sometimes it's easy for me to just want to download information and then I feel good at the end. Like, oh man, I got to, to share truth with them but what if I stopped and asked him a question? What if I asked him a question first, see what the Holy Spirit would do? And this elder wisely asks a question. Here's John's response. And I said to him, sir, you know. Basically in John's answer, he's like, I don't know, but I know that you know. Have you ever been in that place where someone who is smarter than you asks you a question and they know the answer and they know that you don't know the answer? but they're trying to get you to think. I have a couple of friends like that, and I find myself just trying to figure out what they want me to say, you know? And then finally, I'm just like, I don't know what you know. Why don't you tell me what you know, right? And that's what John does. He's saying, sir, you know, why don't you tell me? So he said, these are the ones who come up out of the tribulation and wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. So what we do know is that they had been alive in the tribulation. Could be those that got saved during the tribulation. Could possibly be if if God allows the church to be in the tribulation. But what scripture is very clear about is they have come out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the lamb. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sin. It's the blood of Jesus that allows us to stand before the throne room. What a blessing to know that we can stand in God's presence, not because of our own work, of our own merit, but because of the blood of Jesus. So let's never forget this. Let's never forget that we're sinners. It's not just like, well, I used to be a sinner, but man, present tense today, I'm a sinner and I need the blood of Jesus. And what allows me to be justified, what allows me to have access to the throne room of God, what allows me to have assurance of salvation is knowing that I'm robed in Christ's righteousness. My faith is in him. It's what he has, has done for me. In verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So they're before God's throne. They're serving day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne is dwelling with them. God is, is dwelling with them. That's what eternal life is, is all about. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore, nor shall nor or the sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. So they're removed from all of the suffering that's taking place during the tribulation. Who's able to stand? Well, the hundred and forty-four thousand. Who's able to stand? The ones that are in the blood of the Lamb that, that God has saved, and they're no longer gonna be in a place of hunger or thirst. The sun is not going to strike them. Imagine what this group has gone through as they're experiencing the tribulation. For us, we're not in the tribulation, obviously, but there are trials in this life. And when we go home to be with the Lord, man, there's no more trials. There's there's no more difficulty. I think as believers, we should really celebrate birthdays. And this is why. Well, one is because we're created by God and the second is we're getting closer to heaven. I mean, who really wants to go back? Because if you were to go back, most likely you're just that further from heaven. So embrace it. Man, if you're 80 years old, rock it for Jesus. Like, most likely you're, you're, you're close to heaven. Like, you're you're gonna go be with the Lord. That's, that's a blessing. You know, praise the Lord. So so each birthday that you have, instead of being like, Oh, I'm I'm so old, it's another year, woe is me, my body's wearing out. It's like, hey, my body's wearing out, you know? It's, it's meant to wear out. I don't want to live forever in this life. I, I want an eternal life when I get to see the Lord and receive that, that glorified body. No more pain of this life. I love verse 17 for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wait a second, the lamb is also the shepherd. If you are reading this for the first time, you're like, what in the world? How can the lamb be the shepherd? But that's the ministry of Jesus. He is the shepherd. He is the leader. He is the provider and the protector but he's also the lamb. The shepherd became the lamb to be the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus shepherds us in this life. He leads us to still waters. He restores our soul. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies, but also he's going to shepherd us for all of eternal life. They're shepherded by Jesus at the throne, and he leads them to the fountain of living waters. This is the ultimate fulfillment we're able to sp- drink spiritually of the, the living water now, but just in a small way compared to eternal life where Christ takes us to the fountain of living water. His grace to totally satisfy our souls. And then God wipes away every tear from their eyes. And we see this several times in scripture of God wiping away our tears in heaven. And that's something for us to, to think about for just a moment, is, is why why tears in heaven it doesn't seem like that we would have tears in heaven but there is a moment there in heaven where we're able to experience some type of pain and some type of of remorse and it may be when we look around the throne room of God and there's some loved ones and some friends that aren't there and in that moment man for sure going to be heartbreaking Paul writes and speaks that our life as believers is going to pass through a a fire. As we have our life tested, some of it's going to be burned up, but some of it's going to result in precious gems and stones that are presented at the the feet of Jesus. And the scripture says we're going to suffer loss. There is going to be that moment of going, wow, I wish I would have redeemed more time for, for Christ. But then that pain doesn't stay for all of eternity. Jesus wipes away the pain and ultimately it represents that that Jesus is wiping away all of the sorrow of this life as parents sometimes our our kids are in pain and they're, they're crying and I think most of us have wiped tears from their face and unfortunately as a mom or a dad you can't make the tears always stop can you sometimes they just keep coming and that pain is there But Jesus is able to comfort us, and with his hand, this speaks of his tender care for us. With his hand, he he touches us, and he wipes away those tears. And remember, in his glorified body, in Christ's glorified body, he still bears the wounds of the cross, the scars of the cross. And so as we see his hand going to, to wipe the tears from our eyes, we see those scars. We see his sacrifice for us upon the cross. This is where I want to leave us uh, this morning. And you can just take this in as this promise from Jude 24. When we think of God sealing us, if we think of the 144,000, this multitude around the throne room of God, it speaks of God's power to be able to keep us. This is Jude 24. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. (laughs) Think about this promise for just a moment. God is able to keep you from falling, to keep me from falling. A lot of times we we think it's on us, but He's faithful to keep us from stumbling. And then He, you, you personally, me personally, He's going to present us faultless, present us glorified, present us robed in in His righteousness, cleansed by the blood of Jesus before the presence of His glory, which is the Father. A real joy in my life was when all four of our kids were born and I got to introduce them to my parents and Amber's parents. Just that joy of that, of like, man, this is your grandkid, right? And Jesus, it says here, He's got joy before the presence of of his glory, with exceeding joy, Jesus is going to have a smile on his face, saying, this is my bride that I have died for, and present us faultless before the throne. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. When we look at this time of the tribulation, a lot of times we get fearful, and we get discouraged, But notice what God's doing in the tribulation. He sealed the 144,000. He's doing spiritual revival in Israel. The 144,000 is presenting the gospel. People are getting saved. People are coming to know the Lord in the tribulation and are gathered before the throne room, and the peoples and the nations of the the world are rejoicing in the Lord. So God's got it under control, and he's going to keep us as well. He's going to keep you. He's going to keep me. We're sealed by the Spirit, and he's going to present us faultless with a big smile on his face. So, Let's stand and pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your ability to keep us from stumbling, your ability to present us faultless before the Father. We thank you that we're robed in, in the blood of Jesus. We thank you that we're sealed by the, the Holy Spirit. So we take great encouragement in your word. We take great encouragement in your love and help us to go out this week in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray for those that don't know you, that are wrestling with making a decision about Christ, that they would trust you for salvation. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.